We're in our Easter season, and uh, we're preparing, we're talking about the love of God that never gives up on us personally, never gives up on the people that we love, that we care per- about, and never gives up, never gives up on the person that we, that, that's our person. The never give up kind of love we're talking about is not just a feeling, it's not just an emotion. Feelings change. Emotions move all over the place according to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We're speaking of of a commitment. We're speaking active, permanent, guaranteed love that is safe, that never stops working for the best best in you and in others. Love that doesn't accept or acknowledge defeat, but keeps fighting, keeps working, keeps pouring out all that it has towards your best outcome. This, This love of God never gives up. I ran into a man just a couple of weeks ago and told him about the series I was preaching, and he said, well, you know, I, uh, you, you don't know how bad I am. God gave up on me long ago. And I, and I stood there, and I thought, God, how do I answer this? And I, I, I just stood there for a second, and I said, you're, you're pretty full of yourself. And he says, pardon me? I said, you think that God said, I'll never give up my love on you, and, and you think that he's given up on you? It, it, that you're, you're worse than God's grace? Well, I never thought of that, he said. God's love never gives up. The never give up kind of love is expensive. It, it costs the giver so very much. Have, have you ever experienced sticker shock? How many, how many know what sticker shock is? Okay, see, I said that in a staff meeting a couple of weeks ago, and two people, half, of the, half the staff that morning said, I've never heard of that. But I want you to know that it's found in the dictionary, and it has a valid uh, dictionary definition and everything. You decide that you need something. You, you, you decide that you need to find a car, let's say, and, and so you start your search for that item by writing out a list. You, 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 you write down all of the things you need in a car. It needs to be reliable. It needs to have four doors. It needs for this country to have a very good heater that comes on quickly. It needs lots of trunk space. It needs to be easy to maintain, something that will last you for five to seven years. And, and, and you establish a price range, something that you're able to afford. And so you start your search. And you look at a lot of lemons, you pass many vehicles by that are for sale, but because they don't fit the criteria that you've set, you, you walk by them. You see some that come close, but not exactly what you had in mind and hoped for, and so the search continues. And one day, unexpectedly, your eye catches the gleam of a beautiful, and for me it would be fire engine red vehicle that has a for sale sign in the windshield. And you stop and you look it over and and yes, it has all the things that you want, plus, plus it's beautiful. You, 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 You stop and you can see yourself driving this down the highway with the windows open and and the wind blowing through your hair and and, and you can see yourself loving life and loving the journey and loving the adventure. And before you know it, this moving piece of metal has worked its way not only into your plan and into your vision, but into your heart and into your story. 
Corey, you love this car. But then you go to the front windshield in the upper right-hand corner, and, and you see the price. And there's, there's both shock and dismay to discover how high the cost of owning this miracle vehicle is. It's way beyond your budget. Had you known how expensive it was, you would never have stopped to look, but, but you did. And, and now this, this beautiful thing is, is part of your story, part of your dreams. And, and, and how, how, do you, how do you get along without it? You wish you hadn't stopped, but you have. And, and now you're either going to have to go back and rework your budget and plan on living on mac and cheese for a very long time, or you're going to have to walk away knowing that you'll never be satisfied driving any other car for the rest of your life. Sticker shock. Or you're given a gift. And while you're grateful for the thoughtfulness that the giver has shown in, in remembering you and the occasion, you, you, you're not expecting very much. But, but when you open the box, you see the craftsmanship. You, you recognize and pay attention to the detail. And you realize that this was, was not a, an inexpensive gift. This is an heirloom. This is, this is something that is to be treasured and carried, cared for by you and your descendants. And you're surprised, you're, you're shocked to discover the commitment, the price that the giver has paid to make this gift possible. Love is a word that, that's thrown around with careless abandon these days. We all do it. I do it. I, I love the weather. I, I love artisan bread. I, I love what you've done with your hair. I love that the flames are in the playoffs. I love that the election will soon be over. I love that summer's on its way. We love, we love, we love. And when it has such a ubiquitous meaning, love loses the essence of its, of its meaning, the power. It loses the value. It loses something of its uniqueness. Paul, writing to the, to the Corinthian church, wanted them to know that love was not weather-related, not connected to our fickle senses or the ability of our home team. He speaks very plainly. He speaks very powerfully about what love is. Love is always patient. It's never unkind. It, doesn't have a jealous agenda or a need to be acknowledged for what it does. Love can't be rude. It's not ever selfish or irritable. It cannot keep records of when it has suffered wrong. It works for justice and can't be happy about injustice. It never gives up. It never loses faith. It always has hope. It endures always, no matter how difficult, through each and every circumstance. You, you, you don't have to be very old or very experienced to know that this is an extravagant, this is an expensive way to live and love people. It means ignoring feelings when they arise. It means that you have to learn to manage your emotions. It means that you have to refuse to give up when it would be so easy to do so, that, that you press on no matter 
what it costs you because love never gives up. Never. Jesus illustrates this with us. When, when, when we think of his, when we think of his, uh, of his life and his ministry, we, we can be lulled into thinking that, that he had a, a pretty charmed life. There was his connection with God. He heard from God every morning. It says that he, he goes into a private place and God pours into him what's going to happen, what he's supposed to do for the day. There, there was his ability to meet people, know them immediately, read them, and, and fix them. He, he, he didn't have to have a nine-to-five kind of job. We have, no, we have no record of him having to do paperwork which seems like heaven to me. It, we, 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 we see that, that he's able to travel quite a bit with some very close friends, that he sits and he talks to interesting people and says interesting and significant things to his generation that would be remembered and be talked about throughout the ages and talked about here this morning. However, we get to John's Gospel the one that we're reading together from now until Easter Sunday, and, and we pick up the sense from the narrative that there were some unbelievably difficult pressures on Jesus. There are some obstacles that he's running into throughout his work that, that might not have ever been considered in a casual reading. I've chosen, and I'm asking that you'd go with me to John chapter 7 as our text because all of a sudden, you and I are faced with some information that speaks about how extravagant, how expensive his love that never gives up on us has been and continues to be. You see, from about April to October of this particular year, Jesus had been in his home region, in his home county of Galilee, traveling around town to city and uh, teaching and performing miracles. And while he's there, he's very aware of what's going on in the nation. He's aware, very aware that his enemies that were headquartered in, in a county next to Galilee, the county of Judea, headquartered mostly in Jerusalem, are plotting and planning against him. They're upset with Jesus. They're upset with his popularity, with the influence that he has. They're furious about his teaching. They're jealous of his authority and confidence. And so they have determined that the best thing to do with Jesus was to have his life snuffed out. Jesus was very aware of the plot and the plan that was in process. And so he's in, in the county of Galilee and people are preparing to come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, or as it's called here in this version, the Festival of Shelters. It would be something akin to our Thanksgiving in that it was held in the fall just after the crops were in. It's one of three great feasts and festivals that the Jewish people are requested and required to make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate. And it was regarded as the most sacred and the most joy-filled feast on the calendar. 
People from across the country would make their way to Jerusalem, and when they would arrive there, they would live in these lean-tos that were built out of uh, palm branches, and, and they would live in there, and they would thank God for his consistent care, for his love, and for his provision from the time that they were living out in the, out in the desert in Moses' day, right up until this most recent harvest. With that festival coming up, the question was being asked and raised, uh, when do you plan on leaving for Jerusalem, Jesus? What are our travel plans? Should we start to pack? Should we start to get ready? Keep in mind, Jesus is aware that his enemies are plotting to kill him and thinking that it's not quite time yet, he's thinking to stay out of sight in the capital city and region. I I want you to think what it would be like to have knowledge that there are a group of haters who are looking for an opportunity to assassinate you. Several years ago, more than 20 years ago, uh, we had an encounter with a family in this, this area in, in our neighborhood. Uh, their children had been saved here and there, there'd been a difficulty and they didn't think we resolved it properly. And for six months, the mom would be parked over here at 7-Eleven. And I would pull into my parking spot on, on a Monday morning, a Tuesday morning, a Thursday morning. Pretty much every morning that I came for six months, she would be sitting across the street looking at me. And she would roll down the window as I got out of my car. And she'd wait till I was looking at her, and she'd put her hand out the window like this, and go, Those six months were a little stressful coming to church. What happens when she comes with more than her finger loaded? Just think, just imagine... The extra pressure that that would bring, the the thought, the planning that would be required to avoid those people, avoid giving them an opportunity. Add to that information the pressure, the misunderstanding that comes along with family that don't support, do not understand who you are and and what your life mission is. John chapter 7, starting in verse 3, there's advice that's given to Jesus by his brothers, his the, the, the sons of Mary and Joseph that came along after his birth. They, they saw him. They saw him moving to the front of the crowd. They saw his, his profile. And they, they, they say, you need to leave this rural backwater of Galilee and go down to the capital city, to Judea. The, the crowds here are, are thinning now, and, and you'll be able to recapture your, your, your popularity if you're down there. But if, if you stay here, it's not going to happen for you. And, 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 and you need to show up where the crowds are, and where and when the people of the nation gather. You need to be there. You need to be in the center of it. And you can become famous if, if you're there, but if you, if you stay here in Galilee, you can't become famous. If you do such wonderful things, then you should really show yourself to the world. This is his brothers that are saying that. And it sounds, it sounds sort of helpful. 
it appears that the brothers are, are constructing a plan for a, a successful political event for their candidate. If you want to win the election, then you go to where the people are and you lay out your platform, you grab the attention during this crucial news cycle. That's their advice. However, you have to listen to those two verses in the context of the fifth verse in order to pick up the tone. It says in that fifth verse, his brothers did not believe in him. His, his brothers were not convinced that he was who he said he was. They, they didn't think he was the Messiah. They were not aware that he was sent by God and that God had a timetable and that it wasn't his time to walk into the hands of his enemies. You can almost hear the, the scorn and the sarcasm of the words, if you can do such wonderful things, then you need to show yourself to the world, big brother. When you realize that the brothers don't believe in him, you, you, you get a sense of the tone. Jesus knew the will, knew the timing of God, and that God's plan wasn't to raise up a, a public political movement. They were trying to push him that way. Jesus understood that his pathway was headed in a very different direction, that rather than being a conquering hero that would come in to great fanfare, that his role was that of a servant. One who would be humiliated and punished with a criminal's death. Paul says this in, in, about the plan in Philippians. In, instead of power and popularity, Jesus emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man that was obedient. He was a perfect example, even in his death, a criminal's death by crucifixion. You have enemies that are seriously consulting with hitmen to take you out. Your family doesn't take you seriously, doesn't support what you're doing, and gives you advice that's contrary to your assignment. That, that's a lot to handle. That's, that's a lot of pressure. But that's not nearly all the pressure that he's going through. Jesus answered his brothers in a straightforward way. You're on a different timetable than I am, and you're free to come and go to the feast as you want. However, I'm on a mission, and this is not the time for me to arrive at the festival and to reveal who I am. And then he sort of pulls back the curtain and shows them something that I'm not convinced that, that they see and for sure they don't understand. He says, you don't understand this, but the world hates me. And, and he's not speaking about individuals or, or groups of people, but he's, he's speaking of systems and powers that run and work and make the world an evil, corrupt place. He's speaking of the ones who, 
who live in darkness and perpetuate harm. He's speaking of an unseen world of powers and principalities that stand in opposition to him. They hate me because I accuse them of doing evil. Not only are there people on the ground looking for how they can quietly make Jesus disappear and family moving contrary to the plan and purpose of God, but now evil power is standing up in opposition, trying to block his way. Powers that have been assigned to do whatever it takes to stop the plan of God from being fulfilled. Do whatever it takes to keep him from being on the cross. Do whatever it takes for, from him being the sinless lamb of God who can take away this the sins of the world. Jesus says to his brothers, I'm I'm not going to be visible at this festival. This isn't the time for me to grab the headlines. I, I, I won't be seen there, and because this is not the timing of God, I I won't be seen. You you can go, you participate, but I won't be there in a visible way. So the brothers leave, and Jesus waits for a while, and quietly, secretly, he goes to the, to the festival, and he, and, he, and he stays out of the public eye, not being caught on anyone's radar. His arrival was anticipated and talked about by everyone that was there. It was expected that he would come and that it would be easy to find him. And so the Jewish leaders were surprised to discover that he was in fact difficult to locate. Nobody had seen him. And they spread the word that they were looking for him and that if anyone knew his whereabouts that they should notify the powers that be immediately so that they could interrogate him. You arrive in a city as a festival participant and hear that the local Authorities are wanting to question you and that everyone has been asked to help find you. Have you ever arrived in a city where you know no one and all of a sudden someone comes up and says, are you, and calls you by name? I was in a layover in Salt Lake City and I'd gone into the washroom and I'd locked the stall and I was just in there privately and all of a sudden, wet bulks of paper towel came flying over the top. Not one, not two, but about ten. It's, it's pretty disconcerting. I know nobody in Salt Lake City. But two of my twisted friends had gotten off a plane and saw me going into the washroom and said, let's get him. If you see Jesus, report him. We want to have him interrogated. Even though he wasn't seen, he certainly was discussed. At the feast, you're in one of two camps. You're with those who believed that he was a good man or those who said that he was a dangerous fraud, a heretic, who was deceiving people. The conversations were 
were private and held between friends who were trusted, especially the favorable conversations, because there was a fear, a wide understanding that the Jewish leaders were doing all they could to to find Jesus and put an end to to his ministry and to his influence. There There was fear in the streets, not only for Jesus, but for anyone associated with him. So Jesus is in the city for the festival, but no one knows that he's there. Until halfway through the feast, Jesus steps out of obscurity at the the temple, and and he goes boldly, and he teaches the word. He he boldly declares who God is and what God's purposes are for the current generation. Again, people... People are amazed at the authority that Jesus has in his teaching. He's not speaking about how this rabbi or that rabbi interprets this particular passage. He, He speaks confidently. This is what God says. This is what God means. And this is the fulfillment of what God has promised. The question in the audience was the same as it always has been. Where did he get this confidence? How did he come upon this this authority? How How did he become who he is? He's not been classically trained as a rabbi. How how does he do what he does and do it so well? No one touches him in the whole nation. No one touches him as far as the ability to open up and make the scriptures understandable. If they admitted that he was sent from God, then they had to soften their opposition, but that would mess too much up in their life. And and so while they marvel, they still defame him. Jesus had the ability to hear both the words of God to him personally and had the ability to hear the whispers of people's hearts where he was. And when he heard them contemplating, when he heard them discussing, where does he get this authority, this ability, he, he answers them truthfully. I, I know you're wondering who I am and where did I get this message. I want you to know I'm not preaching my own made-up stuff. What I tell you this day, I convey out of a fresh and living contact, contact and revelation with God. God sent me. God instructs me what to say and when to say this. This makes the haters hate even more. It makes sense to those whose hearts are open, but the haters are just, if he's, from, if he's saying he's from God, then who is he saying we're from? Jesus says, if you have a heart to follow God, if your heart is in any way synced up with heaven and what God is doing and saying, then you will know, you will have a certainty that what I teach is from God because it reveals who he is. It's what you know of him. It's what you know from him. It's, it, it's about him. It's for him. If you know God at all, then you will know the message is from God because this is the source of my message. Everything I give you, I get from God. The person, 
the, the heretic that speaks for themselves, wants glory, wants attention, focused on, on who they are and what they do. But a person who seeks to honor the one who has sent them speaks truth and not lies. I, I challenge you, he says to the crowd, I challenge you to find a contradiction, find an error, find something that I have said that departs from the things that God has always said and prioritized. In what I have said, where have I departed from the word God has given to you? The crowd goes quiet and nobody has the nerve, has has the courage to stand up and challenge him because they can't find a place where he is in contradiction of the word. And so Jesus goes on and he says, listen, if there's any discrepancies at all, It's not found in me, it's found in you. You you make a great show about how committed you are to the law of Moses, yet you don't obey it. I know that that insults you, that shocks you, Jesus says, but the law of Moses states that it is unlawful to kill, yet you are plotting, you are planning, you are attempting to, to kill me. Moments before, this crowd is worried about what they say about the one named Jesus because they're afraid that the Jewish leaders will do to them as citizens if they sound as though they support or agree with this teacher from Galilee. But when he states that there are those who are plotting to kill him, they react violently. There is no plot. No one's trying to kill you. You must be demon-possessed to level such an accusation. That the good people who are our spiritual leaders would try to do such a thing at such a sacred moment as the one we're observing right now. You must be demon-possessed. When we're misunderstood, when we're talked about in a way that's not accurate or truthful, it's one of the hardest things to deal with in life. It's one thing when someone says to you, I agree to disagree with you. But it's quite another thing when that same person denies that you know the truth and publicly declares that you're possessed by devils and are a lying lunatic. Damage is done to your self-esteem. Damage is done to your heart when that happens. And there was damage done here. He was tempted. He was afflicted. He was insulted and assaulted in every way, just as we are. So he understands what we experience. The difference is his love never quit. He never gave up. He did not sin in the process. A, A little bit later, Jesus pulls his followers aside and says, listen, I want to give you a heads up. There's some hardships ahead for you. This love that never gives up, it's costly. I've, I've lived it out. I've exemplified it. You, you need to be prepared. I, I had violent critics. I had family who misunderstood. I encountered spiritual opposition, the, the, the kind that you could never imagine. I endured slander and mockery and humiliation. But I did not quit. I did not let it push me off to the side or get me off track. 
Because love never quits. Never. It never gives up. When the world stands up and declares it hates you, I want you to remember that it hated me first. And they hate you because you belong to me. They hate you because you stand for the truth that I represent. If you act and believe and live as one who is owned and operated by the world system, then the world loves you. They embrace you. They bring you close and and say good things about you. However, that's not who you are. I, I pulled you out of the system. You belong to me because I chose you. I value you. And so the hatred that was aimed at me for not conforming to the dark powers and principalities will hate you for what you stand for and who you represent. Heads up. If it happens to the teacher, then the students, the followers, can be aware that it's coming their way as well. There was a persecution that came after me. It will naturally be aimed at you. Don't don't take it personally. They, They will do all of this to you, not because you are who you are, but because of who I am. They're not rejecting you, he says. They're rejecting the Father who sent me. Men love the darkness because their deeds are evil, and so they can't embrace the Father of light. If they hate me, then you can know they hate my Father. And if they hate me and my Father, then you can know that they hate you. Old Testament prophecies said that they, that this would be the way that it would be. They hated me even though they had no cause. I did nothing to incite hatred, but they reacted to what I represent. Jesus says, I want to be completely honest with you. I am to one who embraces rejection, relishes persecutions and misunderstandings, looks forward to public confrontations where angry people spew their hatred and false accusation at me in in group forums. None of that is found on my bucket list. I I don't like that kind of stuff. I, I don't like going into a mall and having someone say, oh, you're the... You're the maniac guy from that weird church in the corner in a loud voice for everybody in Walmart to hear. I don't think, oh, thank you, Jesus, in your name, I'm building brownie points. That never occurs to me. However, I am inspired by the example of Jesus despite all that's going on, he he stayed true and committed to the mission because he values me. He he values you and wasn't ready or willing to lose relationship with us and so paid the price, whatever it might be, so that he could rescue us. He's saying this morning that no matter what you think of yourself, he values you high above anything else on the planet. 
He believed in you and me and knew that under his direction and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we could, we could come together and we could alter the course of history and impact our generation because love never gives up. No matter what the opposition, no matter what the cost, no matter what the sticker price might be, love never quits. It just never does. The definition of strong and God, like love, is is a love that sacrifices everything it has for the cause. You'll never find a greater love than this, Jesus says, than when someone lays down his life, sacrifices his life and his purpose and his desire to, to, to save a friend. That's love. Last month, a 28-year-old Australian white supremacist walks into two mosques in New Zealand. And he shoots 49 people dead. In the confusion, in the pandemonium, the shock and horror, there are two men who thought nothing of their own lives but jumped into action to stop the shooter from hurting others. Abdul Abziz from Afghanistan, 48 years of age, confronted the shooter at the second mosque. He, he chased him and he confronted the killer and saw the man drive off rather than shoot and do any more damage. Another man ran up to the shooter and attempted to impede his progress. That man was killed and his 17-year-old son were murdered. There is no greater definition, no better picture of someone who sets aside his life, his, his agenda, his dreams to save the life of a friend. Love doesn't count the cost. Love doesn't stop because it's an expensive thing to do. God sends this message to you and to me this morning. I know everything there is to know about you, he says. I know your history. I know your doubts. I know your fears, your failures, your wounds. I understand that there are all sorts of forces at work to keep us apart. And you need to know that I value you so much that I will do whatever it takes to reach you. I will be patient. I will pursue you. There's nothing that will cause me to give up. I will never lose heart, never lose faith. I have a solid hope that will keep me in pursuit of you through every circumstance of your life. And at moments like that, when I hear him speak to me, speak to you like that, I just, I want to sit and I want to weep in gratitude. Remember this, he says, I loved you and I believed in you before you loved or even believed in me. I valued you before you knew I existed or valued me. I did all that I did when you were still a rank and rebellious sinner. My love never gives up. Can I have the keyboard player, please? We 
We were walking on a street, my friend who's a pastor in a city that he'd pastored in many years ago, and we ran into a couple that he had married. He'd given them premarital counseling, and he'd performed the ceremony, and he'd been their pastor for a few years after they married, and then he moved on, and they changed cities, and, and so this was the first encounter that they'd had. He said to them, How, how's it gone? And he, they said, oh, right now we're, we're in a great place, but you need to know we, we went through some difficulty. My husband had some major sustained pressure on his life, and under the pressure, he cracked. At one point, he, he went to the church office and pulled the fire alarm and said, listen, the demons are coming. The demons are coming. You've got to run and hide. It's going to be total destruction. He ended up being put away in a psychiatric ward for a while. And and we went through some difficult things. And my, my friend said to them, what got you through? And the wife said, were days that I sat in the room and I saw the man who looked like my husband but acted nothing like the man I'd married. I wondered, what should I do? How can I continue? What about our kids? What about our future? What if this never gets solved? And then she looked at her former pastor and said, I remembered though what you said. You said that love never gives up. You said that there would be mornings that you would look, that I would wake up and I'd look at him and I could say with full assurance, I love you, I love you, I love you. But there would be mornings where I would look at him and I say, today I choose to love you. Love isn't a feeling, it's not an emotion. It's a commitment, it's an action. God loved you so much that he says over and over again in his word, and he says over and over again today, I love you, I'll never give up. I, I believe in you. I have, I have good plan for you. I, I know that I've given you so much to think about already. However, there's something that, that Paul says about this never give up love that I want to add to your basket so that you can think about it all week. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. And if you can just write that down so you can go there throughout the week. And, and just think about, just meditate on these words. For God has proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure, the gift of his son. And since God freely offered him as the sacrifice for us all, he certainly won't withhold from us anything else he has to give. I read that verse so many times this week and was just so moved and so thankful. It wasn't just a one-time thing where he gave his son, but he said, listen, this is the proof. This is, this is the evidence that everything I have is yours. It's the confidence that I had in coming here this morning and saying, if you need more funds, stand up. We're going to pray because I know God won't withhold from us. He didn't withhold his son. 
Anything else he has is ours. He wants to give it to us. That's this lavish, extravagant love that just doesn't fight to get you on side, but keeps on giving. He didn't stop with the sacrifice of his son for you. Then you know for certain he will not, he cannot withhold from us anything else that he has to give. Will you bow your heads?